Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. It's good to be back. I missed you guys. I uh, I took a vacation all of February. Well, like a, you know, a schedule vacation. I didn't go anywhere because, of course, there's a pandemic still going on. So I've been home. But I needed some time. You know, I was... Uh, I was getting tired. I was doing a lot of shows. This is show 74. <laughs> so uh, 73 of these shows have uh, been recorded to a week since last May. So I took some time off, really enjoyed it. Um, a lot of it has been posted on my Instagram and some of it in the uh, newsletter as well, which goes out on Sundays. If you're not on the newsletter list, go to heathrosella.com and enter your email there. And you'll get to stay up to date with me. But I did a lot of woodworking, which, you know, I've talked about with some guests on this show. And it's a thing that you'd think because I worked at this old house for a million years, I would be really good at and, you know, have a million tools. I am not really good at it. And I don't have a million tools. I have some tools that help me get by. But I built a really cool cabinet for our living room and I'm just so kind of blown away <laughs> that I knew how to do it and proud of myself. And thank you all for those of you that, you know, commented online and were happy about it as well. I also started a project with my daughter. I've mentioned before we're homeschooling her this year. And so we took this year as a chance to do some maple sugaring, which I had kind of always wanted to do and had never done and never thought I would do in my own backyard. But it's awesome. I bought a couple of buckets from a company called Tap My Trees, and it came with the whole kit that you need. So far, we've gotten about 20 gallons of raw sap, and I'm literally, as I'm recording this, boiling my second batch into finished syrup. I'm probably in the quart and a half, two quarts range of finished syrup, starting with 20 gallons of raw sap. So you can see it's a really low yield, but it is so tasty and awesome. So again, lots of pictures over on my Instagram and uh, lots of talk about it in the newsletter. And so one of the changes I wanted to make is to do this show once a week, at least for now. I don't know if I'm going to stick to that or if I'm going to change that as as we go on. I don't know. Um, you know, there are a lot of conversations that I want to have, but I spend a lot of time preparing for each episode. When I have an author on, I read their book. When I have a filmmaker on, I watch their film. When I have people from a TV show on, I'll watch the TV show and, you know, several episodes. So it's a lot of prep work that goes into the show and then, you know, editing and posting it and all that kind of stuff. So doing two a week was a lot. So I'm going to be doing one a week every Thursday. Make sure you hit subscribe so you will have episodes in your feed before anybody else. But yeah, I was feeling a little burned out. And I use that term lightly because my guest today really knows all about burnout. And so I thought what better way to come back than with a new show that talks about burnout. So Paula Davis is my guest today. She has a new book that is out later this month called Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. And she's also the founder of the Stress and Resilience Institute, which obviously looks at burnout and stress and, you know, all these things, especially as it relates to the workplace. So I really enjoyed reading Paula's book. It has a lot of research in it, a lot of anecdotes, and a lot of really practical steps um, you'll hear us talk about it, but the key really is that burnout is a company issue and it is a big problem and companies need to address it on the corporate level. It's not something that 
is solely the role of the individual. The individual obviously plays a part in it, but it's not something that you can just combat with a wellness app or meditating or things like that. It takes some work and it takes some real structural changes. So, you know, I don't think what I was going through was full burnout. I definitely was feeling stressed and, you know, looking for a different creative outlet and woodworking and making maple syrup definitely did that for me. But yeah, Paula went through her own burnout in 2008. She was a lawyer and went through symptoms of burnout. It's what caused her to go on to found the Stress and Resilience Institute and now to write this book, which hopefully goes on and helps a lot of other people. All right, here it is, my interview with Paula Davis. Well, I want to start by just asking about this past year, I guess, this whole kind of COVID lockdown period. What's it been like for you? So I think I've had a little bit of a unique experience with the whole lockdown. So I'm in Wisconsin. So, you know, obviously every state has seemed to be doing things a little bit differently. But um, I have uh, an office space separate and apart from my house. And so even when, you know, we were in true kind of almost, you know, lockdown mode, I was still able to go to my office because it's just me Uh and just the room. And so I still felt like I had that physical separation between work and non-work, which is really, really nice. I think it it sort of saved my sanity in a lot of different ways um, because I also have an almost five-year-old. And her daycare, actually, her 4K program actually stayed open. And so, yeah, we had lots of conversations about whether... Um, We should send her or not send her. And we kept her out for a little bit. And then we decided to send her back. And because she was having a heck of a time not being with her friends, her school had, um, you know, created a space where, um, you know, she was sort of with her little pod of friends in in her class. And that's, you know, the kids didn't, you know, intermingle and there were fewer kids there. And, you know, so it was just an ongoing situation that we kept monitoring. So on and off, there would be points in time where, you know, there, there would be spikes in numbers and we would pull her out for a week or two and then send her back. And so it was just kind of a kind of a fluid process. But I, I was fortunate that I didn't have what so many have experienced, which is this, you know, day after day after day, month after month, you know, experience of having to, you know, both try to work and homeschool yeah. an almost five-year-old because I was writing a book right. during this process too. <laughs> yeah. so, well, that's my, mine are eight and five. So I just, I've, I've yeah. been in that latter scenario that you described and it, it, it can be chaotic at times. So yeah. how did, how did your daughter do with like, were they masking and stuff at the school? Like, was she okay with all that? Yeah. And she's been really great with masking. Um, what's interesting in the state of Wisconsin, kids under the age of five in school settings are not required to wear masks, which, you know, has been interesting. Um, she, when we're not in school and she's not in school and we're, you know, going grocery shopping and to target and things like that. Um, she always has one on and she does a fantastic job with it. And so now that she's approaching five, she'll be five next month. She's going to have to wear one every day and much more consistently. So we've been trying to (laughs) prep her for that and have her wear her mask a little bit more frequently and things like that. But she's, she's always been fine with it. Yeah. 
Uh, and the, the workspace you described, that is that like like an outbuilding on your property or is that like a whole separate, like you go to an actual office somewhere? No, I go to an actual office somewhere. Gotcha. So it's, it's uh, um, the next town over is a really small town. And so it's just a converted building with what are it, five different office spaces that we're all in separate, you know, kind of in our own space. So I just wear my mask into the building, come into my office, and then it would be just me the entire time. And so there's only ever probably four or five of us yeah. in here at a time anyway. And so just kind of a unique situation. Yeah. Well, I think having that physical separation and just sort of being in work mode and being in, you know, kind of home mother mode, you know, that's uh, that must be nice to be able to sort of take off those hats and change them as you need to. Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, it just really, I think psychologically, probably not overreacting and saying that it probably saved my sanity on a number of different occasions. Right. And so, and so, you know, especially having in needing really a separate space to think through, you know, all of the book stuff and read all of the research papers and things that I had to read to, to kind of, I needed sort of that, that quiet kind of separate spot. And yeah. so to be able to have that was really a blessing. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you about your writing process too, because I noticed mm -hmm. there are a lot of COVID references in the book and sort of, you know, dealing with how workplaces are changing, you know, over the last year or so. And, and it feels like it's going to be an ongoing thing. But I mm -hmm. wonder sort of when this all struck a year ago, how far along were you? And at what point did you realize, like, you'd have to sort of embrace those changes in, in the way you were talking about these issues? Yeah, it was, I mean, talk about, I mean, just an unforeseen crazy event, I think, really for everybody. But so I formally found out that I would be writing the book in November of 2019. Okay. So I spent the holidays toward the end of 2019 and into the very beginning of 2020 just getting myself organized. Um, my cousin came and helped me, you know, hundreds of different pieces of research and articles and things like that that needed organizing. And so I took, you know, kind of that front end space of, you know, really getting myself organized to actually write a book. And this was my first time writing a book. And yeah. so I kind of didn't know what I didn't know. And right. so it was just sort of like, this is what I think I should be doing. So yeah. I did it. Uh, and, and managed to squeak in a vacation the end of February oh, of nice. last year. So yeah, yeah my, so my daughter and I went to Florida to visit my mom and dad who were wintering there. And on February 27th, we were with thousands of other people at the Magic Kingdom. And so, wow. so thinking about that now, it's, it's, it sounds so crazy. But, you know, really, the lockdown and everything kind of started to happen in earnest it, about a year ago, almost yeah. exactly. And so I was into just had just started writing some of my initial, you know, thoughts in my intro and in my first chapter and right away was faced with what is going to happen to my business? Because, mm. you know, my business is not just writing stuff, but it is teaching and training and educating and working with people and, and traveling to organizations to do trainings and things like that. And yeah. so that went away very, very quickly. And so there's sort of the balance of writing the book and needing to manage deadlines and deal with all of that balanced with how am I going to pivot my business and what does this mean? I mean, so that was a very stressful, you know, at least kind of month, month and a half of, of trying to balance and think about both of those things you know, two very different <laughs> mindsets sure. for, for each of those. But yeah, no, um, it, it turned out to be really such a blessing in a lot of different ways because I, I had a chance to, I think, do a lot of work with organizations that I wouldn't have had to, uh, wouldn't have been able to do otherwise simply because, you know, as the pandemic continued to unfold, you know, people started to have different reactions from a mental health standpoint. Uh, a lot more people were feeling exhausted and feeling burned out. 
it became people became more interested in, in my work and what I was doing. And so really having a chance to you know, just hear people's perspectives in an ongoing way throughout this whole process and hear kind of what the sentiment was at the beginning stage versus how it was in October versus how it is now sure. has been an interesting you know, process for me to capture in the book. And I, I purposely, you know, obviously there are, are a number of references, as you mentioned, to the pandemic, but I didn't want this to be a book about burnout in a pandemic or right. about the pandemic because burnout was a serious problem leading up to the pandemic, but obviously had to capture that. Yeah, but <laughs> but I guess that's like, you know, I, I'm just thinking back to like March and April of last year. And sort of being in that place where it's like, okay, you know, we'll go home for two weeks or, you know, a month mm -hmm. or whatever. And it's like, okay, maybe by the summer, well, certainly by the fall. And yes. like, I'm never thinking we'd be here a year later. But like, just the idea that for you to like to put something into print, <laughs> that's going to be out there. <laughs> that, you know, here, here's how we deal with this stuff in COVID times. Like, yeah, at what point did you realize like, this isn't going away, or sort of the way that the way that we work, <laughs> and, and that kind of work life balance, the, the, it's changed now. There's a there's a fundamental change to that to that system. There's a fundamental change, and it's exactly the the way that you described it. I had the same thought process. So you know, it was the initial pivoting of everything, thinking, okay, we'll we'll do this fun virtual thing for you know a month, right. maybe two months. And I thought, okay, but you know, I had some conferences in the middle of the summer, end of May, kind of as the summer was beginning. That yeah. I thought, okay, there's still a possibility that these will hang on, and then they dropped off. And then I thought, ah, oh, you know, I'll be back you know, flying in the fall, because fall is always the busiest time of the year for me. And then as we got closer to fall, I realized, no, this is not anything that's probably going to change for the rest of the year, for the yeah. rest of 2020. And then because it was interesting when this happened, I thought, wow, I'm, I'm glad I'm writing a book right now, because, you know, I won't be marketing it in a virtual world next year. I'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll be out meeting people again. Right. So obviously, here we are still in the virtual environment. And, and I think you're right, there's a fundamental shift that has happened to the way that we do work. And, you know, just from my interviews and talks with, you know, CEOs and other people, I don't think there's an answer to what it's going to look like. And I think every industry is going to be different. I think organizations are all approaching this differently. Um, you've seen, obviously, some organizations already say, you know, you, if you want to, you can work from home forever. Right. You know, I do a lot of work in the legal profession, and I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's still kind of a big interest in getting people back into a physical workspace. But what exactly is that going to look like? And, you know, you see so many articles now about, you know, our organization is going to mandate vaccines before employees can return to a physical workspace. So I think there's so many open issues and there are no answers. I mean, folks and organizations are just going to have to try things out, see what works, see what doesn't work. Other organizations will learn lessons from that. And, you know, there's just going to be this continual shift, I yeah. think, going forward. Definitely. You know, I, I want to ask you, too, before, like, I want to come back to some of this COVID stuff and sort of how mm -hmm. all of the pandemic, I guess, is affecting work. But I feel like just sort of understanding some of the definitions is important, too. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that really stood out to me in the book was talking about burnout and stress being two very different things. And like, mm -hmm. burnout isn't something that just, you know, some extra vacation days or, you know, a mental health day here and there can solve. It's a more fundamental issue. I wonder if you can just sort of talk about how you define burnout. Yeah, these, these have been aha things for me to learn over the 10 years that I've been researching and learning about this topic, because I also entered this conversation back when I had burned out very much 
along the lines of what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently? This is my problem to have dealt with. And in reality, we know very much so that it's, it's a systemic issue. But um, so I think one of the ways that we've gotten off course with the conversation is that we think burnout is an interchangeable word with just general stress. Yeah. And we, we lose the perspective that stress exists on a continuum and that it turns into burnout when you experience chronic. So it's more often than not over a period of time, exhaustion, cynicism, and then just feeling like you're not making an impact. So that's when you know you sort of cross the line over into something else. But what we do is we just have a bad day or we're just really tired and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm so burned out. Yeah. And so that term has lost its meaning and we use it in the same way that we would stress. So clearing up that confusion is important. And then also really paying attention to the fact that burnout was always intended and does mean something that happens in the workplace. So I define burnout as the manifestation of chronic workplace stress. Mm. And when the World Health Organization updated its definition, you know, it also made very clear that burnout refers specifically to something that happens in the occupational context and even goes as far as to say, should not be applied to describe experiences in other areas of life. So that's another way that we've sort of blurred the lines between you know, what we think of as burnout and that it really is something that starts and grows in the context of work. Yeah. And there's a, it sounds like a clinical definition of World Health Organization yes. putting it that way. Yeah. And yeah. As, as you say, it's not really a personal issue to solve. It's it's an organizational and, and structural issue, right? I mean, that's like, it comes down to sort of the company's culture and, and how they manage stress and things like that. Hundred percent, and you know, in reality, the true answer to that is it's both, right? So there, I mean, there are things that individuals can do differently, and realize, and you know, rethink about, and develop self-awareness around in terms of their own wiring. I call it, you know, figuring out your wiring, but it's it's deep stuff, and uh, you know, that's one of the things that I'm I'm keen to clear up too. That it, you know, on the individual side. It's not anything like yoga or wellness apps or things like that that are going to help you individually figure out why you're burning out. It's it's a much deeper conversation and deeper skills that you have to you have to start to think about. But that's only a very, very small piece of the puzzle. And so, you know, your your own internal work is going to be really important. But unless and until the rest of the organizational culture comes along for the ride, you know, this is going to very much be an issue that remains unsolved because, when you start looking at the causes of burnout, like what really makes it happen and makes it go, it's all workplace stuff that that you can't fix with traditional stress management remedies. Yeah. yeah I mean, things like resource allocation and, and just feeling like you're making a difference. I mean, even just like that little change in, in culture, right, of sort of understanding the impact that your work is having can can you know, make, make big strides towards fighting this? Oh, it can be, it can be enormous. And, you know, one of my favorite studies that I came across that I put in the book, um, you know, when I was talking about meaning and impact uh, was a study that was um, done in healthcare with physicians looking at the physicians who spent up to 20% of the time doing what they considered to be the most meaningful parts of their work. And that's different for everybody, but yeah. whatever they considered to be kind of the most meaningful or impactful parts of their work had burnout rates that were at least half compared to the people who didn't orient their time that way. And so we don't think about that. And I think in a lot of organizations, it sounds kind of squishy, like to talk about, you know, meaning and impact and, and what are those things even mean? But, um, you know, the research is pretty robust in showing how paying attention to that, even just slightly 
becomes important. And I can certainly attest to that in, in my own work, you know, looking at having no meaning and feeling like I was making very little impact in my legal profession compared to, you know, what I've been doing for the last 10 years, it's night and day. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because I feel like there has been a push, you know, towards more white collar jobs and just, you know, spending a lot of time on computers and, you know, behind Excel or PowerPoint or whatever it is. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's a much less direct connection, I think, to impact when you're manipulating a spreadsheet, perhaps, than when you're, you know, I don't know, chiseling something out of wood or something like that. You don't, you don't see the impact as immediately. Oh, a hundred percent. And, and that's, I mean, it's a cool thing. Like when I, you know, when I write my articles and I publish an article, it's like, it's a tangible thing that I just did that I just put out into the world. And right. you can see like how many people like it. You can quantify in certain respects, the actual impact that you're having. But no, when you are, you know, behind a desk or behind a spreadsheet and you're just putting information out into the world or, you know, I talk to a lot of professional services organizations and and professionals who are very knowledge-based workers. And so you're just, you're sort of giving advice, but you're not always seeing how that advice turns out or whether it's even resonating or, or being followed by the people who you're giving the advice to. And so it can be really hard when you don't get that direct feedback. Yeah. Very hard. You you cited in the book, I don't have it right in front of me, but I think it was a nursing study, like nurses yes. in patient care, right? Where like just doing an exit survey um, after the patients had left the hospital and sort of, you know, sharing that back with the care workers and saying, you know, look, the patients left happy, they're healthy, <laughs> you know, that had a huge impact beyond just, you know, you, you care for somebody and they get discharged and you don't think about them again. Yeah. I mean, it was just proof of this whole entire concept. It was the hospital, I believe the hospital administrator um, sent a note to the discharged patients and gave them each a postcard and said, if you are so inclined, you know, let us know, give us some feedback. How are you doing? And how was the care that you received? Yeah. You know, because if we don't get that direct feedback, especially healthcare professionals, we're sort of left to wonder, did we do anything? Right. And, you know, for people who care very deeply about wanting to help other people, that's, that's not a good feeling. And so I think they found that about 20%, which is a decent amount, about 20% of the discharge patients actually wrote back p- postcards and said, not only am I healthy, but I absolutely adored the nurse or nurses or, you know, folks who were giving and providing me care. And Mm. so when the nurses then read that, that's like just, it's like, it's the best feeling. It's like getting a a nice warm hug and it just allows you to sort of like walk a little taller and you feel a little bit better about what you're doing. It gives you some energy and and it kind of refortifies, I think, your willingness to want to continue to, you know, do hard work. And so it was a, it was a very eye-opening study. Do you, I, I have no idea if you, this wasn't in the book, so if you've done research into this mm-hmm. at all, I looked into it, but just like I've I've been getting emails the last couple of days of just like, you know, third reminder, complete your customer survey, uh, customer service survey and, you know, things like that. We're like feeling really pressured to, to do a post-sale survey and it may be on something trivial. You know, I went and bought, I don't know, glue at Home Depot or something and, yeah. you know, <laughs> they just want to keep asking me like, how was it? Yeah. Um, or the alternate, like. You know, it, at the car dealership or something where they say, look, you're going to get a survey by email. Anything mm-hmm. less than a 10 is really not good yeah. for me. Like, I just, you know, what's the connection, I guess, between like, why do companies want to do so many surveys now? And is it a tool that helps build morale? Is it a tool for <laughs> corrective stuff? Like, wh- why are there so many surveys out there? I mean, that's, that's a really good question. And this is just my own opinion. And my guess is that 
the message in organizations sometimes is wherever you can put data and metrics around something, try and do it. Mm. And so I, I think honestly there is, and it depends on what the survey is for, but I think there is probably some intentional, like we care, we honestly care about what you think about, you know, the service that we just provided you and, and really honestly do let us know. But I think some of it comes across as disingenuous because if you're a big company and I send you honest feedback that maybe something didn't go well, you're going to send me a canned response and the odds of anything happening are probably like zero to 5%. And I know that. So now it's not worth my time to really say anything. And so I move on. And the, the thing that is, I think one of the most irritating things is when you then tell people what to put, right? Because you're supposed to be soliciting people's candid (laughs) feedback. And if you say anything less than a 10, is bad for us. Now I'm either thinking, well, I was going to give you a six, but now I feel bad and I feel guilty because I'm now harming potentially somebody else, or I don't know what the implications of a six are going to be, but I don't feel like giving you a 10. And now I feel sort of manipulated. And so I'm I'm just not going to respond. So that's not a good approach either. Yeah. I want to ask you, too, on sort of looking at structural changes in organizations and, you know, just that preventing burnout needs to be a part of of the company culture, I guess. Does Mm -hmm. that imply that a company with a certain culture is going to see a higher rate of burnout? Like, Like, is that predictable, I guess? Is it predictable that an organization with a certain type of culture might have higher levels of burnout? There are lots of different types of job demands. So things that take consistent effort and energy about the way that we do work and the way that our environment is oriented. There's six really big core ones that companies need to focus on. And I think that to the extent they lose sight of some or all of those core six in particular, I think that the odds of burnout potentially being higher or more elevated in those organizations probably exists. But it's pretty clear that there's some, you know, some specific areas that companies really need to focus on if they want to minimize the instance of burnout. Yeah. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned some of your other work beyond just the book. And, you know, you founded the Stress and Resilience Institute, which trains companies to look at these issues and, you know, incorporate these changes into their culture. I wonder, like, what has it taken to get people to be more receptive to that message? What is it when, when companies reach out to you, what are they looking for or what first brings them to you? So I think it's a number of different things. I I think, especially over the last year, year and a half ish, I think it has just been the clamoring of teams and the people in the work environment saying, we're exhausted. Like we need help. Like we're feeling burned out, even if they don't necessarily know what that term officially means. They're just exhausted in a way that they haven't felt before. And so companies, I think, really are wanting to figure that out, right? And to give, again, but their approach is, let's give individuals individual strategies to help with the problem. What I can do then is, at least once I get a foot in the door, start talking to leaders and starting to educate them about what burnout really is and that, you know, if this is really something that is front of mind for organizations, you can't just end it at the individual level. You really have to start looking at this in a systemic way. And then I can talk to them about some of, you know, what the research shows are are particular areas to pay attention to. Um, I also like to talk to them about, you know, bottom line aspects. That's one of the ways I try to bring people along is saying, you know, look, burnout is very heavily tied to rates of errors and attrition and engagement and other things that you can, you know, at least put kind of some numbers around. And so it's not 
a stretch for a lot of at least larger organizations for burnout to be a tens of millions of dollar problem. And so, yeah. And so when you start to make it about that too, then, you know, some light bulbs go on and, and what have you, but it's, it's mainly those, you know, those entry points, just knowing that it's an important topic to be talking about right now. I think that the pandemic has opened up leaders and organizations to be willing to hear some of this now, like, oh, okay, we really do have a responsibility to start looking at this in a systemic way. I think it's still going to take a lot more effort and education, but but I think if there's a silver lining, at least in my field to the pandemic, I think that it's opening up eyes in a way that wouldn't have been open before. Yeah. Um, it's interesting too, because, you know, just we talked about how the the pandemic has sort of shifted all this and, you know, I guess I'm wondering just broadly, like, wh- what do you see as the connection between the pandemic and burnout? Are rates going up in this past year? That's a fantastic question, because I see so many articles talking about how burnout rates are out of control and burnout rates have skyrocketed and burnout rates are, you know, all of these sort of big, um, almost hyperbolic kind of wording sure. to, to the whole burnout problem. Um, And then I oftentimes find when I start to dig into some of those articles and writings that they're not driven by any sort of empirical measurement. And so burnout can be measured with empirical tools. There's some really great gold standard measurement tools um, out there to actually measure and get your arms around the rates of burnout and what's causing it. Hmm. Um, But most organizations use um, just non-proprietary, you know, general questionnaires that I'm not sure all the time are truly measuring burnout. I think sometimes they're just measuring stress. And so when you start to see articles saying like 75% of, you know, employees say that they're burned out, that's an astronomically high number. When you compare that to studies that are usually that are using true empirically based um, methods to track burnout, where you start to see rates more like 30% to 50% or so healthcare tends to be, you know, among some of the highest rates of burnout. Now, having said that, do I think burnout rates have probably increased? Yeah, because the causes of burnout are manifesting themselves right now. Can I say that they're like 75%? Probably not. So there's, I think we need to just have, take a little bit more of a measured approach to how we're talking about rates of burnout right now. Yeah, stress is up, but burnout, maybe not necessarily. Or maybe a little, but I, I don't know that it's gone from 30% to 75% in the yeah. last year. Right. So. That would be a pretty good <laughs> jump. Um, yeah. I mean, you talk about kind of the workplace changing too. And, you know, the, the subtitle to the book is Why Teams Hold the Secret to Wellbeing and, and Resilience. And, you know, teams are suffering right now. You, you talk in the book just about the, you know, meeting at the water cooler or the coffee machine or things like that. And, you know, that interaction being gone. Like, how are companies innovating around that or how are they able to get you know especially when there's attrition and new hires and things like yeah how do you how do you build a culture when everyone's on zoom or six feet apart it's extremely difficult and i think that that is um that's something i tried to convey in the book and i think it's something that needs to be punctuated even more sort of forcefully is that we're doing the best that we can with what we have right now. It's just not a sufficient replacement to the physical interactions that most people really want to have, at least at some point in their work life. And so, especially with, with onboarding and things like that. I mean, I I can't tell you how many new professionals I've talked to who, (laughs) who have started and like, 
they'll start and they kind of like get into the system and then nobody talks to them for a couple of weeks. It's just it's just a very weird environment because you don't have that same approach and you're not interacting with people and it's harder to ask questions if you're not sure about like a political issue potentially in your organization or just a company policy issue or who do I ask about this particular question on an assignment that I have? And it's a strange just sort of approach to do that. And so I really hope as we think about the future of work that we don't engineer out connection. Mm. So I'm a big fan of giving people autonomy. I'm a big fan of letting people work from home. And it's going to be different for everybody, but I hope we take a balanced approach to it. I hope we don't now completely swing in the other direction where before we were like, people can't work from home because they, you know, they just won't be focused. And and we can see now that providing people with autonomy, and I've known the research, there's 40 plus years of research around how important autonomy is for people at work, you know, that we don't now swing completely the other way and say, well, no one has to come back to work ever again, because, you know, it's, it's moments of it's feedback, it's bumping into somebody and, you know, riffing off of an idea and then creating something from that and difficult conversations about things and onboarding and all of these things are just done better yeah. when we're when we're in person. And that's just hard to replicate. Yeah. You know, I'm curious, too, we talk about like corporate culture and, you know, things like that. And to me, again, that feels that feels more white collar and it certainly feels, you know, like a full time employee scenario. (laughs) And obviously, you know, freelancing is way up contract work, gig working, you know, the gig economy, Mm -hmm. just sort of all that stuff where, you know, people are are self-employed now. And there isn't a boss or a corporate structure or, you know, there may be 10 different bosses. Like how if if you're sort of outside of, of a mainstream corporate environment, what does burnout look like and, and what can you do to to stay on top of it? Yeah. So what happens with burnout? So we we've, it's this interplay. So the formula is the same no matter what kind of work arrangement that you have. And it is that you have too many job demands and too few job resources. Uh-huh. So whether I work in a humongous organization or whether I'm a freelancer and like you said, I have, you know, six different bosses, experiencing burnout is the same thing. I have too many things that take consistent effort and energy about what I do and too few resources, too few energy giving or motivational aspects of my work. And so a big part of that for creatives and for, you know, people who own their own small businesses and things like that is to recognize what those things are like literally listing. And I have people do this in my live workshops. What are the job demands that you have? And most people come up with like 25 and 10 seconds, you know, and what are your job resources? And most people sit there for a while and wonder (laughs) they've got far fewer on that list. Just because you have, you know, 20 job demands and six job resources doesn't necessarily mean that you will burn out either. It, you know, if your job resources are robust and you have a lot of meaning and you've got a lot of leader and colleague support and things that are important, that might be enough for you to not experience burnout. Um, But for other people, that might be a completely different equation. So that's really the starting point is to get a handle on those things and then try to think about or understand okay, if you're lacking in resources, what do you need? You know, do you need more interaction with people? Do you need more autonomy? How do you have that conversation? Do you, are you being thanked or recognized enough? And if you're not feeling that way, who can you talk to about that? So it's, it's sort of digging into it from, from that perspective. Gotcha. 
I want to ask just about sort of your own uh, history, too, because you alluded to it a little bit, uh, both in this interview and in the book. But, you know, you're working in the law profession and experienced burnout yourself. And it, it's what <laughs> what got you onto this course, I guess, of, you know, founding the uh, Stress and Resilience Institute and, uh, you know, writing the book and all this. When did you first start feeling these symptoms of burnout? And, you know, what was that like for you? Yeah, so I practiced law for seven years, and I would say it was around the sixth year or so, because my burnout lasted a good year or so, uh -huh. that I really started to notice, like, something is off. It's something something is wrong. Like, you know, I just started going into work 10 minutes later than I usually would have. I mean, it was just these little things in the in the beginning where I could slowly feel myself kind of disconnecting or unplugging from any sort of joy or impact, again, that I felt like I was having in my career. And then that just kind of, you know, snowballed over time. So burnout tends to start in these little ways um, where you're just like, <sighs> you know, it's like, and I, you know, talk about the Sunday scaries where it was Sunday night and I wished I could freeze time because I didn't want to go into work on Monday mornings. And then I stopped playing my co-ed softball leagues and I stopped hanging out with my friends as much. And it was this slow sort of unplugging from lots of all of the kind of entry points to vitality in my life over this period of time mm. and finally realized that something needed to change. Like I, I either needed to rearrange how I was working in the place that I was at, or I needed to go back to practicing law in a different, you know, back to the law firm that I was at or pick something new or completely do something different. And so that was kind of the next phase of, of things, trying to understand what is my next step in all of this. Yeah. And so, you know, I put in the book like, oh, I'll just go to pastry school because I love baking. Right. It was this very unintentional sort of random next step that I thought would be fantastic. And that didn't work out at all. And then having to come back into an environment that I knew wasn't working and now I didn't have a plan B really made things worse. And so that's really when the exhaustion and the cynicism and all of these other pieces started to ramp up and I started to get sick more frequently. And, you know, I was having panic attacks eventually very frequently and I was in the emergency room twice. Wow. Yeah, because I had stomach aches that were so bad. And so I knew there was something about work that was causing all of this. And I was desperately trying to find a way to get myself into a new work situation you know, but you can't just walk into work one day and say, I'm done, even though it sounds appealing and it sounds like it'd be the cool thing to do. You know, reality sets in and you, you have to figure out what your next step is going to be before you start to, you know, implement, you know, a disconnection in that way. So it was just such a process. And I, I didn't know what any of this was. And the thing that I should have done, too, is I should have um, you know, I talked to a lot of healthcare professionals because I was experiencing all these physical symptoms, but I didn't know to say the word burnout right. and they didn't know to ask me just generally, how are you doing in life? You know, kind of a thing. And I, I wish I had reached out to either a mental health provider or I would have had a more in-depth discussion or I'd been a little bit more open with my boss who was fantastic about what I was experiencing, but I just didn't have the language at the time and I didn't know what to say. And, um, you know, it, it is what it is. And that's part of the reason why I'm so passionate about, you know, educating leaders and people about what this is, even before you get into the strategies, you know, knowing what this is, is important. Yeah, right. So, so you can track it with your team. Um, just some of the symptoms you described, though, to me sound like at first glance, I would have thought, OK, maybe it's depression or something mm. like that. You know, just like how do, I guess our burnout and, and other mental health issues 
intertwined or are they distinct? Yeah, so no, they can be intertwined. And so what you have to keep in mind too is so stress exists on a continuum, so does burnout. Yeah. So you can be at the front end of burnout and you know just be feeling like, yeah, you know, it's Monday. I'll go in 10 minutes later. Or you can be, you know, kind of in the, the middle to latter stages of burnout and be like where I was, where you're starting to having having panic attacks and things like that, or whether physical or mental health consequences. And so the research actually exploring the intersection between burnout and depression is a little bit all over the place. And again, it depends on the measurement of burnout that is used in the studies that are looking at it. But there definitely can be an overlap. And what I always tell people is I think of burnout as a gateway process where it's, you know, it's, it's the manifestation of chronic workplace stress. But when the stress keeps ramping up and up and up and up, you're going to have some sort of physical and or mental health reaction to that. And so for me, that opened the door to anxiety again. For other people, it opens the door to depression. For other people, it's neither of those things. Some people just decide, you know, I'll have an extra glass of wine tonight. And that turns into something that's a little bit more problematic. So it can manifest in lots of different ways. But I think of it as just, again, it opens the gate to some of these other pieces happening. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I wonder, too, just like from your perspective, you know, imagining being in your place at that time and thinking, okay, this work situation's not working. But, you know, I've gone to law school, Mm -hmm. presumably with a lot of debt, maybe, or, you know, for a lot of people, (laughs) that's the case, you know, passed the bar, done all this work to get to this point. Maybe it's a different area of the law. Maybe it's a different law firm. Like for you to just take a hard right turn and say, no, I'm going somewhere else entirely, like what got you to that point, I guess? What was that thought process? Yeah, so I I actually didn't start with the hard right turn. I started exactly with what you were talking about, thinking exactly the same way. And again, approached my boss who was phenomenal. Like just, I wish everybody a boss like him. And I said, you know, I was practicing commercial real estate and had practiced commercial real estate for my entire practice. It was starting to become kind of boring. Not that it wasn't complicated or the, the deals weren't interesting, but I just wasn't really connecting with it much. And so yeah. I actually asked him, I said, is there another place? Because I was in a corporate legal department in an organization when the burnout was happening. And I said, you know, I'm really interested in learning more about trademarks. And I'm really interested in learning more about just some of the other contracts that the organization enters into, you know, in other areas separate and apart from real estate. Could I do fewer real estate deals and take on some more of this other type of work, because I think it would be really interesting. I think that was sort of in my mind, how I thought I could reinvigorate my career. Yeah. Um, and he, he thought that that was a great idea and the powers that be did not. And they really needed me for a whole host of reasons to be focused on real estate deals. And so it was so frustrating because I tried other options that were smaller in nature. And it just felt like I kept hitting roadblocks every time I did that. Gotcha. Yeah. And so that's when I started to, to kind of think more along the lines of potentially owning my business, which I, I knew I was going to do at some point in my life. Um, I come from a very entrepreneurial family. And so that was always something I was very interested in, but you know, I, I didn't know what, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to run my own law firm. So yeah. I knew it would have to have to be a shift. So well, it's interesting. Started. Yeah, it, it's interesting just thinking about the business that you started. And, you know, I mean, it's been a decade plus since your burnout and, you know, sort of mm-hmm. going through this journey. But like the idea that you took sort of this this really low point in your life 
and turn it into your calling, you know, I'm really intrigued by that, I guess, because I feel like a lot of people, once they're through it, would would want to turn their back on it and say, okay, <laughs> never again, you know, like, what, what, what made you want to want to share that journey and, you know, help people in, in a similar situation? I will tell you what I've categorically turned my back on is practicing commercial real estate law. So that is the thing that I will tell you with 100% certainty I will never go back to. Because people say, well, you go back to practicing law. And I always say never say never. But I am pretty sure I won't go back to practicing law. But I can tell, guarantee I will not go back to practicing commercial real estate law. Yeah. So I think, it, it, again, it was sort of a slow process. So even though I intuitively knew that I wanted to, you know, kind of pursue this master's in applied positive psychology and learn some tools to help people get better and not burn out, it still hadn't crystallized for me in, in a big way, especially in terms of sharing my story, until I did my work with the Army soldiers. So when I finished my master's program at Penn, the Army had just started a program with the researchers at the University of Pennsylvania to teach resilience skills to drill sergeants and soldiers and their families. And it was this whole resilience body of science that really, really sucked me in and pulled me in when I was doing my master's program. And I knew that, you know, talking to people about struggle and obstacle and challenge that I could really relate to because I had just come from that. And so I think that was part of the reason why that topic resonated so strongly with me. But it wasn't until kind of going through the process of teaching the soldiers and hearing them talk about their struggles and how and the challenges that they faced in like really big and profound and deep ways that I then went, wow, you know, I just kind of came out of this whole burnout thing. I wonder if that would be a valuable story for me to start telling or I wonder if I should start saying more about that. So they really helped me feel comfortable starting to talk more about what I had experienced. And then that just grew. And now, now I'm to the point where I'll talk about any aspect of any part of my story, like ever. <laughs> and it's not, it's not a big deal, but it was very hard for me at first to put myself out there and my story out there in that way. And so it, it took a little bit of time for that. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing that, uh, you know, you, you got through it and, and are helping yeah. so many other people. And, you know, I, I think just in closing, you know, I'm thinking about, sort of where this all goes and, you know, what, what happens next. And, you know, I feel like employers lately, the last, I don't know, decade or so have really been touting sort of their on-site perks uh, pr prior to COVID, obviously, but, you know, having a gym or mm -hmm. childcare or, you know, free snacks, dog-friendly workplaces, whatever it mm -hmm. is. Like, do you imagine someday mental health <laughs> programs or, you know, <laughs> things like that will be just one of the things when you go to the, like, you know, about us page for a company? I hope so. I really hope so. And I hope this is, I think, you know, part of my calling now in the 2.0 phase of my business and, and really where I want my business to go is that there is something like that and that it's not just, you know, apps for individuals and it's not just programs aimed at um, individuals and, you know, I think in a lot of respects, making it feel as though we as our ourselves have to shoulder a lot of this burden. I, I would love to see, you know, baked into every leader development program, you know, education about this topic and how to, you know, lead a team that creates a positive culture, a positive environment and a resilience about it so that burnout is less likely to happen. And so I hope that you know, we always have, you have to meet people where they are and organizations where they are, but, but that we can start to build the conversation into more of this bigger systemic 
kind of next phase of, of what needs to happen because I think we're there. I, I think, you know, we're ready to make that step and not leave all of this other piece behind because it's so important, but now continuing to start adding to it and really, really making decisions about well-being and mental health and, you know, these types of topics critical to and directly tied to performance metrics and, mm-hmm. um, you know, hiring decisions and and influencing how a company really runs and looks at a number of different topics so that they're thinking about well-being hand in hand and in tandem with some of the other big decisions that they're making within the organization. All right, there we go. Paula Davis. It was a, It was a great conversation. And it's encouraging to know that she is out there looking at these issues and helping businesses make smarter choices. Paula founded the Stress and Resilience Institute. You can check them out, as well as her new book, which comes out later this month, Beating Burnout at Work, Why Teams Hold the Secret to Well-Being and Resilience. You can pre-order it today or pick up your copy later this month. All right. Before we go, I just want to say, if you are not on the newsletter, make sure you sign up for that. Go to heathrasella.com. Just enter your email address there, and you can also click on newsletter and read past issues. It's been a really fun outlet as well, just to be able to talk to you guys in a different way and uh, in a different context. So I love having the conversation here on the mic, but every Sunday, we also have a written conversation. And if you ever miss an episode of the podcast, I recap the highlights in the newsletter. So make sure you check that out. And make sure you give me a follow over on Instagram and Twitter. I am at Heath Rosella. Always doing new crazy stuff. Uh, you know, woodworking is feeling really good. And I feel like I'm going to keep doing some of that. And maple sugaring and cooking. And, you know, I love it. I love doing it all. And it's been one of the highlights of this COVID period that I can be home and be more resourceful. And it's not just thinking about, you know, microwave dinners. But I can be making really, really good fresh food with, you know, homemade pasta cutter and I'm making bread and just all that sort of stuff. I'm having a great time being home and I'm sharing it all on social media. So if you're not following me over there, you are missing out. New episodes of Quarantine Creatives are going to be coming out on Thursdays now. Make sure you hit subscribe and you will get those episodes in your feed. Plus I got 73 back episodes. So go listen to them. I'm sure there's some fun ones you haven't heard before. I will talk to you guys next week. Stay safe. 